Thanks, Glenn. Well, it's a nice little uh, spring snowstorm that we're having. Uh, on Saturday, Sarah and I were at Snow Valley skiing without need of winter coat. Uh, there was, when you try to get onto the chairlift uh, to go up the hill, there was just a puddle of water that you couldn't help but get your entire foot wet. So we were soaked and drenched and muddy by the time we were done that. And then we woke up yesterday to snow and then more snow today. Uh, and so this is spring in Canada, isn't it? You just, you see the signs of spring one day and then you're back in winter the next. And it's kind of like waiting for Jesus to return. We, we see the signs that Jesus should be coming. I mean, everything that's prophesied, we say, wow, you know, everything is ready and primed in the world for the Lord to return and just bring an end to all this sin and misery. Uh, and yet, He... he he tarries. He, he hasn't come back. So there's more for him to do. There's more winter for us uh, in store, and there's more for God to do through the church before the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are reminded that whatever the weather, uh, the things that God has made brings glory to his name. Uh, Selah, and this is something that you can only be a child to say this in April or end of March. She looked out uh, this morning at the trees and she said, aren't the trees beautiful, Dad? And uh, so she saw beauty in the trees because they were just covered in snow. Would that we all had eyes of a child to see the beauty in a spring snowstorm. And, and to remind ourselves that whatever the weather, whatever, whatever it is that we see, God has made it and it is good. Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. And as you're finding your sp spot, uh, please stand. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be talking about nature today. I'm going to be reading from verses 18 through 23, and we're going to see that we can tell that there is a God in heaven because we can see the things that He has made. Spring snowstorms included. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. This is the Word of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. God, as we begin to consider Your wrath against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, we pray for Your mercy on us and Your grace in our midst. Continually remind us of the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, that though we have 
turned away from You, our Creator, to worship the creation. You have opened our eyes to the truth through the Gospel by sending Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to remind us that it is the Creator who deserves our worship, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, and our God. And so, Lord Jesus, we worship You, the Maker of heaven and earth. We thank You that by Your grace, the wrath that is being poured out and is coming against those who fail to worship You in spite of all the evidence of Your existence will not fall on us. Us who believe. Us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb. For by His blood, we have been saved. God, plant this Gospel deep in our hearts, giving us confidence for the day of glory and the day of wrath to come. I pray that You would minister to each one of us here this morning by Your Spirit, through Your Word, according to my preaching, by Your grace, to meet our specific need, each one of us, reminding us of who we are and what we need in Christ. I pray that You would speak through me, use me, Bridle my tongue uh, so that I may speak the truth for your glory and for the sake of this church. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This opening verse, it, it just can't help but thunder from the Scriptures when we read it. This is a thundering verse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How how would we summarize this verse? The wrath of God is coming. God is coming with vengeance, with justice, with righteousness, against everyone who suppresses the truth. It thunders. This, on its own, apart from the Gospel, is not a feel-good verse, and it cannot lead to the feel-good sermon of the year. Except for the Gospel. So you'll notice what I said. This verse, apart from the Gospel, is not good news, but it is good news for those of us who don't suppress the truth. See, notice that here. It says the wrath of God is coming, if I could paraphrase, against men, which kind of men? Those who suppress the truth. Those who don't just deny the truth, but though it, the truth is bubbling up, it's evident in front of them, they push it down. It's not as though they're, they're walking around blind, unable to see the truth, and then without a happy accident, fail to come to the truth. The truth is in their face and they push it down. And it's against those for whom the wrath of God is coming. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the wrath of God, and a little bit more than that even. But, but we're going to be looking at the wrath of God. Before we get to today's question, which is, What does it mean to suppress the truth? Because that's a really important question for us. Because, why? 
The wrath of God is coming against those who suppress the truth. So let's ask the question, what does it mean to suppress the truth? We don't want the wrath of God to come for us, which means we don't want to suppress the truth. Therefore, we must know what it means to suppress the truth so that we don't do it. But before we get to that, we do need a little pre-sermon on this verse 18. Because verse 18 is a hinge verse. Uh, Verse 18 connects what we've been going through in verses 15 through 17 with what follows in verses 19 through the end of the chapter. It's a hinge verse. It's an important verse. We're transitioning from God's uh, God through Paul, His purpose for writing the book of Romans, which is given to us in that prologue that we've looked at right up into verse 17. And now we're trans, trans, uh, uh, transitioning into the Gospel proper. That is, let's start preaching the Gospel. And the Gospel starts with a declaration that the wrath of God is coming. There's a couple of things about verse 18 though that tie us backward and forward. Looking backward, we see in the first part of the verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it looks forward in the second half of the verse, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the first half looks backward to what we've already covered, and the second part looks forward to where we have yet to go. Let's just Take a look at this. This is what I want to look at. little pre-sermon, verse 18. Then we're going to get into verses 19 through 23. So looking backward, how does the first part of verse 18 look backward to where we've been? It's the very first word. What is the very first word of verse 18? Four. Now what have we been saying about four? Remember? Main idea, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the Gospel also to you who are in Rome. For, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. For, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As, which functions the same as these four statements, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now we get this fifth subordinate clause for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and so this I didn't include it in these four uh, subordinate clauses that we looked at over the last couple of weeks because this verse also points forward and I wanted to use it as a transition verse but it still is going back to that main idea what is the main idea in verse 15 What does Paul say? I am eager. I can't wait. I want to. If God would just open a door for me, I I would get myself to Rome so I could preach the Gospel to you in Rome. We've looked at all these reasons why. Here's the fifth reason why. Because the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Therefore, I want to preach the Gospel to you. I want to preach the Gospel to you so that when the wrath of God comes in all of its fullness, it will pass over you. The wrath of God will pass over you if you accept the Gospel. Therefore, I'm eager to preach the Gospel to you. And and as a preacher of the Gospel, that's, that's my heartbeat. I am eager week in and week out to preach the Gospel to you 
so that on the day of wrath, the wrath that is sure to come will pass over you because you have accepted the grace of God by faith, which is in Jesus Christ. So that looks backwards. There's also a more immediate, so that goes all the way back to verse 15. There's also a more immediate look backwards, a glance backwards. And you'll remember, if you look at the end of verse 17, we took a look at, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we said, well, where is that written? Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And the context of Habakkuk 2, 4 was that Habakkuk looked around and he saw all this unrighteousness in all of the leadership of his, uh, of his community in Jerusalem. He saw corruption in the king. He saw corruption in the chief priest. He saw corruption in false prophets. And he cried out to God. And he said, God, have mercy and turn our hearts back to you. And God says, no, I won't do it that way. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to tear down the kingship. I'm going to tear down the, the priesthood. I'm going to tear down the temple. I'm going to kill most of the people. I'm going to take a small remnant into Babylon. And Habakkuk says, oh God, that cannot be your answer. Why? Habakkuk was praying for mercy. And instead he got wrath. And God says, look, all my promises to Israel will come to pass. I'm not a God who, who, who promises and then pulls my promise. I'm not a God who forgets what I've said. I will do what I said, but I'll do it my way. And, and before we get to the end, if we're going to do it my way, I'm going to tear you down. Now, now that is in Paul's mind. And what do we know about salvation history is this remnant went into Babylon, but then God preserved them in Babylon. They came out of Babylon and God restored them through Ezra and Nehemiah. And he rebuilt the temple. And we know that from this remnant came the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through the remnant of one who was preserved, at least in his lineage, his human lineage, through that remnant that went into Babylon and then came out of Babylon. God knew what he was doing. He did bring the gospel into the world through the destructive force of the Babylonians. But if you're Habakkuk, all you see is wrath. You see God angry about the sin of his people. And that's why God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, if you want to live, if you want to be counted righteous, in the face of my wrath, have faith. Believe in the saving promises of the Gospel when everything around you looks like it's being torn down. And that's in Paul's mind here as he writes, as it is written, the righteous shall, be, shall live by faith. And, and what we know is that when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and carried a remnant into Babylon in 586 B.C., that is but a shadow, a picture of the final judgment to come. The fullness of the wrath of God will fall against this world. We cannot outrun God. God will catch us in our sin. And that's the beginning of the Gospel. You cannot outrun God. God will judge you for your life. 
There is a judgment coming. There is a reckoning coming. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Wrath is coming. The wrath of God is and will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Next week we're going to look more at wrath and we're going to see that God's wrath even now is being poured out against people on this earth and we see increasingly the wrath of God manifesting itself against us in Canada and North America. We'll talk about that next week. In the midst of the wrath of God, now, in part, and on that great day of wrath, when God reveals the secret sins of all people and condemns those who have suppressed the truth to eternal condemnation, eternal exile, the, the lake of fire, uh, an ever-consuming hell, if you want to escape from that now and on that day, have faith. The righteous will live by faith. It, to say that another way, if you have faith, you'll be counted righteous and you will live. So that's looking back. I am eager to preach the gospel because the wrath of God is being poured out and it will come in all its fullness one day. So I want to preach the gospel so that you who are suppressing the truth can see the glory of God in Christ. Accept the truth. Be set free. Be marked for salvation on that great and terrible day of God's wrath. It's looking backward. This verse also looks forward. This, this verse propels us forward into the book of Romans. And in this verse, Paul says the beginning of the gospel is that we have all gone astray. We'll look at that in several weeks. And here he introduces that idea of rebellious humanity. That is, that all humanity, every single person who has ever lived, has rebelled against God from Adam all the way forward to the end. And what is that rebellion? It's a suppression of the truth. So Paul introduces the gospel by saying people, humanity, all of us have suppressed the truth. In other words, this is the anti-condition of faith. That is, if you want to be counted righteous, if you want to live, have faith. On the other hand, if you don't have faith, the opposite of faith is a suppression of the truth. And when we suppress the truth, not just a mere denial of the truth, but when we see it and we intentionally push it down so as to ignore it, that only has one end. The manifestation of God's wrath which leads to death and eternal condemnation. So that's my, the end of my mini-sermon on verse 18. Verse 18 looks backward. 
to where we've been, saying, I want to preach the gospel so that the wrath of God won't fall on you, but it also looks forward and says the foundation of the gospel is the coming wrath of God. Because we have suppressed the truth. We've created our own truth. We've embraced uh, an illusion, a lie. We have, we have embraced uh, hallucinations and mirages. And we've stamped them as true even though they are not true. And therefore, the wrath of God is coming unless we are saved from ourselves from our suppression of the truth, and ultimately, and this is the bedrock of the book of of Romans, what do we ultimately need to be saved from? The devil? Ourselves? Our suppression of the truth? Our sin? What ultimately do we need to be saved from? Who ultimately do we need to be saved from? God himself because God will not tolerate our suppression of the truth our open rebellion against his goodness and his greatness forever a day of vengeance is coming final judgment will fall and we need to be saved from the wrath of God, from God Himself on that day. That's the Gospel. That's why God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save us from condemnation and hell forever. So that's where Paul starts. In the book of Romans. The wrath of God is coming. Now, this week, what I want to do is to explore what it means to suppress the truth. And the reason for this, as I've already said, is because the wrath of God is coming against those who suppress the truth. Next week, we're going to explore this question, what is the wrath of God? So we're not really going to get into the wrath of God much more this morning. So you can be thankful we introduced it. We're going to put the wrath of God to the side. Now we're going to talk about what incites the wrath of God. What is it that, that causes God to be wrathful? Why will He pour out His wrath? Why is He even now pouring out His wrath? We're going to look at the reason for it, the cause of it, the thing that God hates. And then next week we're going to talk about what is the wrath of God. So today's question, what does it mean to suppress the truth? Once we know what it is to suppress the truth, we're going to do everything we can with the remaining days that we have not to do this. And I plead with you two things. Recognize in yourself, please, as I have this week recognized in myself this week, a tendency still to suppress the truth. And number two, I plead with you Make every effort every day to stop suppressing the truth so that the wrath of God will not fall on you. Paul gives us the answer to our question, what does it mean to suppress the truth? The answer is in verses 19 through 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that He has made. So they, that's we, humanity, we, humanity, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Paul's answer to what it means to suppress the truth. I want you to notice a, a, a few things before we take a look at them in order. Number one, do you notice that Paul does not yet appeal to Jesus? This is really important for our understanding of condemnation and wrath. What is it that causes God to be angry? What is it that causes God to come with judgment and wrath and vengeance? We might be inclined to answer that question and say it's a rejection of Jesus Christ. And if we were to say that, we're not wrong. Rejecting Jesus Christ will have its just rewards, which is wrath, judgment, condemnation. But what of those people who have never heard of Christ? What of those people who lived in a time or a place, either in the past or even today, there are unreached people, what of those people who never heard the Gospel? Are they off the hook? What, what of those people who, who don't have an opportunity to reject Christ? And, and here's something. If you want to be motivated to missions, if you want to be motivated to share the Gospel, here is a foundational truth for us in, in, in the church, what we would call general revelation, that is nature, that God has revealed Himself through the things that He has made is enough to condemn us. That, that, that Paul here does not talk of the suppression of the truth as being a rejection of Christ, but the suppression of the truth is a rejection of God Himself more basically. It's not even understanding the triune nature of God. You don't have to reject the Trinity to reject God. At its foundational level, no one has an excuse when it comes to looking at the things that God has made, and it's a rejection of the God who made the universe that will condemn people. And what Paul is saying here is that we have all rejected the Creator of creation. We have ceased worshiping the Creator and we have worshiped the creation. You worship the creation and that is more than enough to condemn you on the day of judgment. But what does it take to be saved? Since the Gospel has gone forth into the world, no one can be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. Call on the name of Christ and you will be saved. We are condemned for rejecting God as Creator, but we are saved by seeing God as Savior in Jesus Christ. 
So we better get the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ into those places where people are, su- are rejecting God by suppressing the truth, by worshiping the creation, and they haven't heard of Christ. Because the only way that they can be saved is to call on the name of Christ. Secondly, Blair preached on this several weeks ago. Blair Hansen in Psalms 19. This is not a new idea. This is, this is an idea that is as old as creation itself. David proclaimed exactly what Paul here is proclaiming. The heavens declared the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Blair did a great job. I commend to you that sermon. Go back and listen to it. But I want to just mention two things. Number one, David acknowledged that you go out on a starlit night and you tell me that there's no God in heaven. It's as if the skies are speaking to us, just shouting at us saying, there is no way that all of this exists unless there's a God who made it. And you know, this is for us as Christians, we should not be afraid of science, but the more that we discover scientifically, the greater we discover God is. The bigger we understand the universe to be, the bigger God must be because He spoke it into existence. And so we need Christian scientists to go out into the world and say, look at this great thing that we've discovered about the universe. That didn't come from nowhere. But God spoke it into existence. Praise be to God. Second thing I want to say about this, because it ties directly to our text, why does David spend so much time in that psalm talking about the sun? Look at the sun. The sun gets up in the morning like like a bridegroom coming out of his tent. It's a very graphic metaphor. That's right after the consummation of a marriage. The proud groom comes out. Let you fill in the gaps. The sun is like that going across the sky like a strong man we're talking about a gold medal winner in the olympics you know the best that we have tempted to worship athletes even today whether it be in a, a toronto maple leafs uniform washington capitals uniform toronto blue jays uniform so too they used to worship athletes why do, why does david spend so much time talking about the greatness of the sun because people worship the sun. And what Psalm 19 says is, you think the sun is great? Because from the sun comes every vestige of life on the earth? Well, think of the one who made the sun to shine its light and give its heat. Worship Him. Don't worship that which He made. Psalm 19. 
here, we are given the answer to what it means to suppress the truth. Verses 19 through 23 describes the kind of people who will be condemned. I want us, with the time remaining, to look at five aspects to what it means to suppress the truth. And then, as I said, I urge you pastorally in two ways. As we go through these five things, ask yourself, do I do that even a little? And secondly, invite God to help you not to do it anymore. Number one, we know there is a God because we can see the things that He has made. Take a look at verse 19, the beginning of 20. What can be known about God is plain to us, changing the them to us, because the them is Paul's way of including all of humanity, and I want it to be specific to us. So I'm not changing the word, I'm not changing the, the essence of what Paul is getting at, but I want it to ring personally. What can be known about God is plain to us, because God has shown it to us. For His invisible attributes namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? In the things that God has made. Now this concept is basic. We know that there's a God in heaven because we can see the things that He has made. How many of you would go to the Louvre and look at all this beautiful art and say that those paintings made themselves or painted themselves. No one. That's ludicrous. We know that there is a painter because we see a painting. We know that the painting doesn't paint itself. Likewise, how many of you would look at a building? We see great buildings in our age. Skyscrapers that are big. How many of you would say, uh, there's a building that built itself from the foundation up. No, you know that there's a builder because you see a building. A book. Books don't write themselves. Every time you pick up a book and you look at it, you know that there's an author because you have the very thing that that author has written. So it is with creation. It's just basic logic. How do you know that there is a creator? Because there's a creation. You do not have a world. You do not have a universe unless there is someone to make it. Everything in our, in our experience tells us that to be true. There is no such thing as a, a big bang from nothingness. It defies logic. Even if, okay, now I want you to notice that I said even if. I'm not now about to endorse what I'm going to say. But I want to meet people who suppress the truth in their own court. Even if we were to affirm the big bang 
millions and billions of years ago, even if we were to do that, that from a, a particle so dense that it would, uh, would fit in on the head of a pin and then there would be infinite amount of room left, and everything that exists in the, in the universe was crammed into that small little point, and then it exploded, and we are all stardust, from that ancient explosion, that primordial explosion. And as that explosion has gone out and things have cooled down and we've evolved from soup into human beings, even if that's true, there's no answer to where all that stuff came from in the first place. You can't get back behind the existence of the stuff that was crammed into that super dense particle to explode. Oh, I said even if. So I'm not, I'm not preaching the Big Bang. But, but even if we were to concede that, where did all that matter come from? Did it just self-actualize? It's foolish. The existence of anything requires the existence of someone who caused everything come into existence. God shows us who He is by what He has made, Paul says. And then, then Paul says we see His eternal power and we see His divine nature. Eternal power. Think about the power of Niagara Falls. Think of the power of hurricanes. Think of the power of atomic bombs. Think of the power of supernovas. If we could harness all of the raw power in the Milky Way and, and, and measure it, think of the power of that. It, it, it's incalculable. The amount of power and energy that is contained in the universe and so what Paul says is God created to show us that He was powerful. Well, that makes sense because the one who spoke all this power into being has to be more powerful yet. How big and awesome is God? Well, how big and awesome is the universe? It fits in the palm of His hand. That's how big and awesome our God is. And that's why God made a universe the way that He made this universe. He made a universe full of raw power to say, I am even more powerful. This universe is small. I did it in six days. Through the power of my Word. That's a big God. You want to dance into His presence after having suppressed the truth? Secondly, we're told that uh, His invisible attributes, His divine nature has been made known. Uh, so what kind of God do we serve? Is He an unsteady God? Is He an unpredictable God? Is He an unbalanced God? Is He an impersonal God? All, all these questions we might have, and God says, well, just look at the things that I've made. Look at the order of the laws of nature. I am not worried that I'm going to 
all of a sudden find myself on the ceiling because I trust in the consistency of the law of gravity. That's just one of so many laws of nature. God made a universe that is predictable and precise. He made a universe that we can study and say, generally speaking, we can anticipate that this is going to happen under these conditions because of the laws of nature. Well, if the universe, the thing that God has made is filled with order, then maybe the God, and most assuredly, the God who made a universe that runs orderly is a God of order. I don't know if you've ever seen Wayne Brown's uh, uh, schedule book, but if God made a man like Wayne to keep order in his life, hope it's okay to use you as an example, that gives glory to God because God is like that. God of order. Divine nature, also we see uh, the, the way in which the universe uh, operates predictably. And we see the more we discover about science, the more we can discover about God. We see in the universe seasons and botany and human sexuality and the animal kingdom, everything telling us something about God. We suppress the truth when we deny that we can learn anything about God by looking at the things He has made. Is God personal? Is God relational? Well, look at us. We are made in His image. Therefore, we are like Him. He's personal. He's relational. He's emotional. Even while He's stable. That's number one. Suppressing the truth is a denial, then, of the existence of God. Number two, no one can rationally look at the universe and say that there is no God. Look at the second half of verse 20. So they are without excuse. There is no one that can look at the universe and say there is no God because of everything that we've said. There are two alternatives. Either in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or from nothing matter accidentally exploded and evolved. Which makes most sense? Because I've done most of the legwork, we can conclude then that suppressing the truth is a denial of the evidence of the existence of God. There's ample evidence for the existence of God and we suppress the truth not just when we deny that there is God, but we suppress the truth when we go a step further and we deny that there is ample evidence to show us that there is a God. Point number three. These two things being true, God wants our worship. Take a look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Have you ever asked the question, what, what do you want from me, God? What do you want from my life? More generally, what, what is it that God asks of us in a way that He doesn't ask of our dogs? 
He doesn't ask this of any other animal in the animal kingdom. But we, because we were created in the image of God, and because He has revealed these things to us, He's given us a mind that can perceive this evidence and logically deduce that there is a Creator if there is a creation. Because He has endowed us with that ability, what is it that God wants from us? They're teaching about Jericho and the walls coming down. So the walls just came down. (laughs) Duncan told me if there's a trumpet, it's not the rapture. It's just his lesson on... (laughs) Uh, Where was I? Uh, What does God want from us? Do you know not much in some ways? I mean, in other ways, He wants everything. Okay, so... I could answer this question, he wants everything that you have. But most basically, do you know what what God wants from us as his creatures? He just wants us to say thank you. Thank you for making me. Thank you for making this world. I'm grateful. You know, it's rational to thank Him. I wouldn't exist and neither would you unless God made the universe and then made us. In parenting, isn't this, can't this, I shouldn't say can't this, maybe you don't have the same experience as me, but can this not be so frustrating? As a father, I just want to give Selah everything that I have. I love to give her gifts. And actually, her ungratefulness at times inhibits me from giving her more. Because it wouldn't be good for her if I gave her more while she is in a state of ungratefulness. And already I give her more than she is grateful for or thankful for. And I don't want her to pay me back in any way, shape, or form except I do want her to say thank you. Not because I say, and what do you say now? Thank you. No, I want her, I want the gratefulness to bubble up from inside of her when I give her something and I want her to say, Dad, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to have it. But that's what God wants from us. Not really much more. Suppressing the truth then is a refusal to say thank you. And what is it when we say thank you? Saying thank you, having a grateful heart, that's the essence of worship. That's what we do when we worship. Whenever you're thankful to God, whenever you're grateful, that's worship. That's why worship is a lifestyle, not a song. But in our singing and in our praying and in our sharing in the Lord's table and and in the preaching of His Word, we worship by being reoriented to say, wow, I'm really grateful for what God has done for me in Christ. He saved you. He's going to raise your dead body back to life and give you eternal life where you'll never get the flu. I know several of our families are sick with the flu today. You'll never get the flu. You'll never get cancer. You'll never never die again. You won't wrestle with sin tendencies anymore. There won't be any more injustice. Is, Is it so hard for us to be grateful? wants us to say thank you 
Number four, about suppressing the truth, Paul says it is foolish not to worship God. Or, to put it in different words, it's foolish not to be thankful. It's a fool that doesn't thank God for his existence or for her salvation. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. I mean, that's to the point, isn't it? It doesn't take much to look around and see all of the people who claim to be wise. The people with degrees on their wall. I've got a PhD, therefore I'm so wise. And yet, you reject God. You won't just thank Him for the brains that He gave you and the opportunity that He gave you to study and to become intelligent. He says anyone who, who denies God, no matter how intelligent they are, they're just first-class fools. And for us, the word fool has become sort of, you're, you're like a clown. That's not what Paul means. He means you, you are uh, just a vile, wretched, ignorant sinner. That's what he means by fool. Not a clown. Not somebody to be laughed at. But somebody to be grieved over. It's just plain stupid to not have grateful, thankful hearts. Stupid is a word we teach our kids not to say because stupid gets to the heart of what Paul's talking about. Just a total absence of any flickering wisdom. Absolute stupidity to reject God. Yet the secular worldview would say that we are the smartest, the most advanced versions of humanity that have ever lived. Look at our buildings. Look at our iPhones. Look at our computers. Look at our ability to fly. Look at our ability to mine. Look at our ability to go to the bottom of the ocean. Look at our ability to, to go to the moon and to Mars. Uh, look at our, our media. Look at, 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 look at how great we are. And yet so many of the people who have contrib contributed to the quote-unquote greatness of humanity are first-rate fools against whom the wrath of God is being poured out. Biblical worldview says we're not all that. We may claim to be wise, but we are fools. And so suppressing the truth is a refusal to act on our most basic inclination to recognize the existence of God, the evidence for the existence of God, and the impulse to thank Him. Number five, Paul says we were made to worship and we will worship something. Verse 23. I'll just repeat 22 to get the movement, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We will worship something. 
A denial of God's existence, a denial uh, of the evidence for God's existence, a refusal to thank Him for our very lives and our salvation will not stop us from worshiping. We will worship something. Sinners will worship the things that God has made instead of worshiping God Himself. We will worship the creation instead of the Creator. We don't often, I mean, maybe there are some in, in our midst that would uh, be inclined to worship statues or, or idols. Or, or, or planets, or suns. But that's not really our problem. But we still worship creation instead of the Creator. Money. This is where how I, 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 that first pastoral plea, ask yourself if you're doing these things. Do you worship money? How, how grateful are you to your money as opposed to your gratefulness to God for His creation and salvation of your soul? Uh, what, what are you putting your energy toward in this life? To making more money or to make, make, making more of God? Sex. We, we live in a sex-crazed culture. And it's not easy for us to uh, disassociate ourselves from the sex worship all around us. But does the hypersexualization of our culture prevent you from going certain places, watching certain things, doing certain things, hoping for certain things, fantasizing about certain things? Have you called God into that tendency that you have to worship sex? Because everyone around us is worshiping sex. Might we too worship sex just a little? Or do we realize that sex is one of those ways that God communicates the gospel and the relationship of Christ with the church to us? It's a different sermon. Power. How many are drunk on power? And I'm not just talking about kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and members of parliament and mayors and counselors. I'm talking about pastors and employers. I'm talking about parents and bullies. For some reason, who get some high out of having some kind of power over 5 or 15 or 100 people. Christ, who has all power, came not to be served, but to serve. Drugs. Used to be alcohol was a big problem. Now it's alcohol and legally marijuana and illegally every other kind of substance, including uh, like house cleaners and rat poison and all kinds of things that we put in our bodies so that we don't have to live in the world with rational thinking and clear perception. But probably the biggest idol of them all is self. Worshiping ourselves. This is so easy to do. 
because we are with ourselves all the time. I am always with myself. So it's really easy for me to have an inflated view of myself. How do you know if you're worshiping yourself? Well, your desires are the most important thing in your world. Suppressing the truth, then, is misplaced worship, whatever it is. Anything in creation other than God Himself. So what we learn here is the wrath of God is coming against people who deny that there is a God. The wrath of God is coming against people who deny that there's any evidence in creation for the existence of God. The wrath of God is coming against people who will not just say thank you with grateful heart to the God who made them and saved them. The wrath of God is coming against those who worship the creation rather than the Creator. And here is the truth. The truth that is being suppressed. There is a God in heaven and He deserves our worship. But because of sin, humankind has suppressed this truth and sin causes us to worship creation instead of our Creator. Therefore, God's wrath, which we'll talk about next week, is revealed against us. But praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Do you know, because uh, creation is enough to condemn us when we deny the existence of God, God could have just let that run its course, picked the day of judgment, lined us all up and judged us all, found us all guilty and condemned us all. He would have been right to do that. But he didn't. In fact, he sent his son, who is fully God himself, into the world to become one of us. And as a man who is also God, he worshiped the Father perfectly. He served uh, the Father perfectly and He served us perfectly and He carried our suppression of the truth, our sin in His own body and nailed it to the cross so that if we can just recognize that we have and we still do, at least in some measure, suppress the truth, then He will take that into Himself and He will allow the wrath that is coming to fall totally on Him. He was consumed by the wrath of God so that He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And the answer is because we have suppressed the truth. And He took the wrath of God for us. So if you want the wrath of God not to fall on you, but to fall on Christ, recognize your need. Call out for a Savior. Thank Him. Be grateful for making you and for saving you by the cross. And ultimately, that's all He wants. And He will save you. And He will cause Christ to die in your place and He will raise your dead body from the dead. You will live forever with Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we don't want to suppress the truth. As we look out into this snowy afternoon, help us to remember that there's a God in heaven and that you deserve our worship. 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save. In his name we pray. Amen.